Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I understand that this is the beginning of a new uh, experience, and uh, there was a request that maybe we mark the occasion with a Shekhianu. I actually am wearing a new jacket that I just bought, which is too warm for Arizona, but suits me well in New York, so I will say Shekhianu, and you can say Amen in order to mark this, this occasion. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, Shekhianu v'kiyimanu, <laughs> well, I can because I have recording equipment. Uh, this is being recorded. Um, so, it's also a pleasure to be here uh, in Arizona. I'm always struck, I've only been here once before, but I'm struck by the incredible environment and scenery that hits you as soon as you... Uh, exit the plane, and you're really blessed to live in such a beautiful and sunny <laughs> uh, place. So. so I wanted to talk about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it is not the focus of my research, which I will be talking about later today, um, but it is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, and I, I hope that you'll, you'll join me on this journey. Apologies for the technology. The person who was supposed to be here, unfortunately, was sick today. Uh, so we'll, we'll do the best that we can with the clips that I have. I actually have given this talk on a Friday night for an Orthodox synagogue without any electronics and just described and talked about the things um, that I'll be discussing. So even if you know, the technology does not work, and the sound is not right, we'll hopefully still have an interesting conversation about exciting things that are happening uh, in the state of Israel and particularly in Israeli culture. So, um, Israel is known for many things, like Phoenix, blue skies, unlike Phoenix, golden beaches, fresh Mediterranean cuisine, religious and historical tourism, and an impressive entrepreneurial sector. Until recently, though, culture the kind with a big C, which is celebrated in museum halls, concert halls, film festivals, was not really associated with this young, scrappy country. If it was used at all, the term Israeli culture was laughed off as an oxymoron. Could the stereotypical Israeli, tieless, open-shirted, scruffy, and jean-clad, really produce a worthy cultural product? If you've been paying attention, you have, may have noticed that the answer is yes. Israeli art and artists are now recognized and respected by connoisseurs around the globe. Israeli literature is translated widely and awarded some of the most prestigious prizes 
just a couple of years ago, uh, there was a Man Booker uh, awarded to uh, David Grossman. Uh, Israeli films have been shortlisted for Oscars, while Israeli television has gone literally viral through new adaptations and direct distribution. Israeli PR has emphasized the country's high-tech successes. So you might have heard of Startup Nation. Um, but less appreciated, but I think more substantial in terms of Zionism, are Israel's remarkable artistic achievements. So I thought that we are in the 70th year uh, of the State of Israel. Uh, so I thought it would be a good opportunity to look back and celebrate one of the lesser known and really unanticipated accomplishments, which is the maturation of Israeli TV. We'll talk about cinema, but even TV. And still more surprising is how the recent ripening of this, it looks like I just lost my, uh, hold on, I'm sorry. I'm going to talk, and we'll see if we can get to the clips. Um, sorry. Still more surprising is how the recent ripening of this Israeli art form coincided with the appearance of minorities uh, in Israeli culture, ultra, like ultra-Orthodox Jews and Israeli Arabs, who had previously been not present in this mainstream popular expression. So the inclusion of these other groups of Israelis such as ultra-Orthodox Jews and Israeli Arabs, tells a really interesting, important part of the story. Okay, so we're going to focus on Israeli television, uh, exciting things that have been happening in Israeli television, and especially the appearance, suddenly, of, of people uh, who normally don't show up uh, in this kind of mainstream, uh, form, popular form of culture. So I want to take you on a little historical uh, journey here in terms of understanding and appreciating the success of Israeli TV. And really, we need to start at the beginning and think about Zionism's close relationship with cultural and artistic production. So political Zionism, right, as a movement, started in the 1800s with a growing national consciousness among European Jews, along with a concern for finding a solution for Jewish peoplehood, just solving the problem of their, you know, Jews are being attacked, killed, we need a place for Jewish lives and bodies to flourish. Another really important part of the Zionist project was we need a place for Jewish culture to flourish, right? And this is another part of Zionism that goes back to the 19th century. This process was, could be wrenching and combustive, right? It involved digging deep into the cultural soul of the Jewish people and sometimes separating that soul from the diaspora. Right? So there was an attempt not just to make sort of schmaltzy um, uh, Eastern European culture, which I'm a part of, uh, but also to make something that's both new and old, that's authentically Jewish, but newly Jewish. Right? Now, the greatest achievement when we think about this cultural side of Zionism is actually, I think, the greatest miracle of Zionism, which is the language, the fact that modern Hebrew is a spoken language that you can go into a market and buy something with, or that you can attend a performance, a play. And here, uh, this is truly uh, a miracle. The, the fact that this language was resuscitated, literally resurrected, taken back, not from the dead, but from the synagogue and from study, is something that's, that's incredible. Now, when you think about what happened with modern Hebrew, you see this dynamic I was referring to. The goal is to get Jewish culture on the map and flourishing, 
to do it in an authentic way, but to do it in a new way. So Hebrew was very old in many ways, right? It was the language of the Sidur, of the prayer book. It was the language of Jewish traditional study. It wasn't really the language of avant-garde art. It wasn't the language of avant-garde storytelling, theater. Uh, and what happened was there were choices made in the development of the language that, again, marked the language as authentically Jewish, but doing something new. For much of the childhood of Zionism and the early state of Israel, there was an image of sort of the ultimate Israeli. I have a good example here of what this Israeli might look like. Hold on. Let's see if it's going <laughs> to. Here we go. Um, and that is a strapping, sometimes shirtless, uh, if that, hope that doesn't bother anyone, uh, Ashkenazi Israeli man, right, who worked this country's fields and fought in its wars and maintained a strong, calm, and civil demeanor, right? This is sort of the ideal Israeli, sometimes referred to as the new Jew or the new Hebrew, right? Ivri Chadash. Uh, this is from a very important uh, seminal uh, play, which was turned into a movie. Hu Halach Besadot, translated as He Walked in the Fields. Uh, and this is sort of you know, one way of presenting this new old Israeli hybrid um, in Hebrew uh, for the culture. A lot of the work that was done in cinema is, was done on similar grounds, right? Taking these sorts of figures, these heroes, and putting them front and center to tell the Israeli story. And this was often top down. Uh, the way the funding works, and especially worked, was that the government was involved in the production, in one way or another, of Israeli cinema. I want to talk about Israeli TV. And as you know, TV is often poo-pooed as a less um, prestigious medium. In terms of the history of Israeli TV, there's something really remarkable. Uh, and that is, it was essentially banned for the first two decades of, its, of the state of Israel's existence. Not banned, but the airwaves were, were, were kept shut by none other than David Ben-Gurion himself, the first prime minister of Israel. And the reason was, his reasoning was, is that television was decadent. Television was something that you did and that you do. You plop down on the couch, and you enjoy, and you chill out, and you watch it. Uh, but it doesn't edify. It's not something that pioneers who are working all day long, draining the swamps, planting the fields, fighting the wars, should be doing, in his perspective. So he literally, for the first two decades of the country's existence, kept TV out of the culture, out of the, uh, out of the public space. Right? For the next 20 years, the government allowed one and then two channels. I don't know if there are people here who have traveled to Israel or traveled to Israel during those earlier years. Right? You didn't just kind of fl channel flip. Uh, either you watched that one or two channels, or you watched sort of Egyptian cinema, which has its own qualities. Uh, but you did not have great uh, offerings because the same idea that TV is decadent, it doesn't fit a country that does have to fight for its survival, uh, and, uh, and any leisure time should somehow be more edifying. So we're now 40 years virtually into the state of Israel's existence, and there's nothing worth, worth watching on TV besides things that people look back at nostalgically. 
What happened then, though, was that commercial TV, we're talking about around 1986, commercial TV uh, began to enter the Israeli uh, space. And this is the remarkable, uh, almost miraculous part of the story. Right? Within a very short time, within something like two decades of really its existence, Israeli TV uh, became an art form to be proud of. Right? Now, during, during, th during that time, especially in the 90s, there were revolutions taking place in the United States in terms of television, where television wasn't just watching those you know, cop shows, which are fun, uh, and, and thrillers, but actually uh, we began to see works of art that looked something like serialized novels of the 19th century, but on the screen. So the classic example you think of is The Sopranos, right? The Sopranos, of course, you could veg and watch, watch The Sopranos. But it wasn't, right, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it had real kind of artistic ambition. And that was taking place uh, in the United States. In Israel also, a little bit after uh, this period, you had similarly development of um, ambitious, artistically ambitious uh, a television series. So one of them, uh, that, that made its way to the United States in another form uh, is Bittipool, known as Entreatment, uh, which made its way to HBO after initially being conceived of uh, and aired in Israel. And instead of, again, sort of following you know, two cops along as they uh, experience their misadventures, this show uh, was mainly confined to one room, the room of a psychotherapist, uh, and very intensely looked at the relationships that this person developed and cultivated with his, his patients and how he treated, right, in treatment, uh, his, uh, his patients. It was a remarkable series. Um, it, I think it was somewhat powered by the intensity of life in Israel, uh, but of course people are in treatment all over the world. Uh, so it was a crossover, and it was purchased and then aired and adapted, as the term we use, in the United States, uh, for HBO. Similarly, you have thrillers. Um, you might have ho heard of Homeland, oh, yeah. right? Homeland uh, began initially as a series in Israel that translates as kidnapped or snatched. Um, it too uh, wasn't just another kind of dramatic action a series, but in its original form and in the form that probably most of you know as Homeland was a, um, a very intense uh, look at what you know, some of the challenges that security deal with in terms of terrorism, spies, uh, et cetera. So already, right, within uh, the first real 20 years of Israel's uh, television industry as a commercial industry, you have uh, pretty serious things that are being uh, produced. What happens next is very interesting. Um, Actually, let me just show you one more slide um, that I think is worth looking at. So even in these series, we might not have the shirtless, you know, Sabra, uh, but it's still pretty much that Ashkenazi Sabra during this, you know, early period of Israeli TV success. When minorities are mentioned, others are mentioned, uh, be they ultra-Orthodox Jews or Arabs, it's usually for comic effects. I don't know if anyone remembers the Kuni Lemel uh, series. Uh, this was, it's a hilarious series, but it really lampoons uh, and makes fun of this ultra-Orthodox Jew on his misadventures. Um, and that's really how these minorities initially uh, appeared. 
However, because the Israeli TV industry never had that same relationship to kind of the government and uh, how the government saw culture and thought culture was supposed to be, you started to see really interesting things happening with minorities. So, I don't know if anyone has seen this series. It transla- in, in Hebrew, it's Avoda Aravit. It translates as Arab labor. Uh, it was produced by a remarkable uh, figure in Israeli culture, a fellow named Said Kashua, who um, is this, it was and is a successful author in Hebrew. Right? This is an Israeli Arab. Uh, who was born in Israel, is a citizen of Israel, but chose to write in Hebrew for a variety of complex reasons uh, and succeeded uh, as a novelist and a columnist uh, writing in Hebrew. He also um, tried his hand and found great success in television writing and editing. And he produced uh, three seasons of um, of this show called Arab Labor, Arab labor, by the way, is a sort of colloquial, insulting way of referring to shoddy labor uh, in, in Israel. So if you have uh, a construction worker doing work on your home and he doesn't do such a good job, you might say that's Arab labor, right? Now, obviously, the fact is, because I've had work done on a home in Israel, uh, the fact is that um, it really doesn't make a difference whether that uh, worker, that construction worker, is Israeli, Jewish, Israeli, Arab, or some persuasion altogether, often that work will be shoddy, unfortunately. <laughs> right, so maybe the success in Israeli TV uh, will inspire uh, the construction industry. Uh, but that said, this series um, put front and center in the, in the living rooms uh, of, of Israelis of all persuasions, a family who mainly speaks in their native tongue in Arabic. Uh, there are subtitles in both Hebrew and Arabic to translate uh, for those scenes that are in Arabic into Hebrew and those scenes that are in Hebrew into Arabic. It's a comedy. It does deal with some of the challenges and paradoxes of being a non-Jewish citizen in the Jewish state. Uh, But it is an example, a remarkable example, of how this genre, right, television, was a place where you could explore uh, other ways of being Israeli, other Israeli identities uh, on the screen and in the living rooms of Israelis who are watching. Now, what I want to focus on with you today is another minority uh, that previously had not really been on the screen, and that is the um, Haredi minority, uh, the ultra-Orthodox minority. Um, here, too, right, as I showed you, previously they had not appeared on the screen. I'm sorry about the technology. It's rather small. Uh, but suddenly, um, really only, only in the last seven or eight years, you start seeing uh, serious portraits uh, of this community and, um, once again, artistically ambitious uh, portraits of this community. I want to show you a clip. I don't know if you'll be able to see it, so I will also describe to you what's happening. From a a very new series, just came out uh, last year, it has, to my knowledge, it has not yet been released with English subtitles. Um, I will... The sound might not even be loud enough, but I will explain what's happening in this scene. Uh, And that is, you have a yeshiva, which is where young uh, ultra-Orthodox men often find themselves. Uh, And in that yeshiva, you have the cool crowd, uh, a bunch of friends uh, who are ultra-Orthodox, but extremely stylish, like the fine things in life. 
They enjoy their espresso and their suits. Uh, and then they, there are also the, um, the nerdy right, members of the yeshiva, people who in a way look like that Kuni Lemel who had previously been lampooned. And in what we're going to see in this scene is that this, uh, this um, sort of more nerdy, schleppy, uh, for those of you who know Yiddish, shlemiel uh, tra- tra- type of character is moved into the room of the cool guys. Now, it's an interesting scene because you can see all the effects and funky things that are happening uh, in Israeli TV, but you also can see sort of this vision of the old Israeli ultra-Orthodox character meeting the new type of figures that you're going to see on TV. So let's see if this will uh, work um, and if you'll be able to hear it. He's in the cool part of the yeshiva. I'm Gedalia. <laughs> so that's just from an ad from the, the series. So you see this, again, this kind of old Haredi character that you would see making his way through the cool part of the yeshiva, which is you know, imagined as a place where everyone's on the way to a raft adventure, exercising, having fun. And he doesn't know how to find himself. And then he meets these new, uh, these new people. Now, the name of this series is very interesting. Uh, Shababnikim. Um, does anyone know what this word means? Has anyone ever heard this word? It's a way of referring to these sort of cool, slick uh, Israelis, uh, ultra-Orthodox Israelis, uh, and particularly um, those who are part of the Sephardic community. right? And the name itself is a very interesting name. You have that Nick at the end, which sounds very Yiddish and Jewish. It's Slavic, a Slavic ending. At the beginning, Shabab is Arabic, right? It means youth. Uh, so it's, it's the young ones is literally how it translates. But there's a kind of hybridity, a combination in that name, where you have right, this, these Jews who lived in Arab-speaking countries, like Morocco, other countries in North Africa, Syria, Iran, whose parents or grandparents had moved to Israel uh, and had, they had found sort of a way of expressing themselves with ultra-Orthodox Jews in, right, an Ashkenazi yeshiva, right? So this is a series where it's, which is not just exploring right, what it means to be an ultra-Orthodox person uh, in, uh, in Israel today, uh, but also kind of the, the different worlds within the ultra-Orthodox society that they need to, to navigate. One of the interesting things uh, that you find in this series, let's see if I can get to the next. Here we go. Um, what these people ultimately want, and maybe what the show wants, is a sort of acceptance in broader Israeli society. And these characters are constantly talking about the desire to be accepted, right, and be seen as uh, not just regular Israelis, but dignified Israelis, Israelis that other Israelis would want to hang out with, right, and be with. This is, I want to show you like a really incredible scene um, where Gedalia, that nerdy uh, fellow, is not interested really uh, in, in uh, assimilating to broader Israeli culture, uh, while his cool friends very much want to, right? 
So they think that by dressing very nicely, uh, by wearing suits from Zara, uh, that, they will, that, that they will be accepted, of course, not realizing that most Israelis dress casually. And in this scene, uh, uh, which is sort of very sophisticated, they uh, are kind of pulled into an American football match, right? And they want to prove themselves that they, too, can succeed, right? Here as well, Israelis don't really play American football. It's mainly Americans living in Israel. But let's watch the seed and, 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 and watch what happens. So in that scene, I mean, it's a very entertaining scene. And they're using, I mean, in this series, the use of music is sort of brilliant. You have these Haredi characters, but in the background, you have rap and folk music and funk. Uh, but they actually win, right? And there's sort of symbolic meaning uh, to this victory. They're not just, they don't just beat the, uh, the football team that had you know, lodged uh, football into their barbecue. Uh, but they actually sort of, at least they think, they gain some sort of uh, acceptance. So that's one kind of way in which we see this medium, right? Israeli television as a place where characters that normally weren't seen as you know, Israeli uh, or quintessentially Israeli are on the screen, and they're fighting for their, uh, their place in society. The, the show, and this clip I will probably not be able to show you, unfortunately, but I will describe it to you. The show also deals with um, kind of more serious fault lines in Israeli society concerning ultra-Orthodox, and especially concerning the question of the army draft, right? In Israel, there's a mandatory draft um, at the age of 18, uh, with certain, in fact, many exceptions. So even not only men, but women are drafted, but there's a very sort of well-known <laughs> exception for women, uh, if they are religious, that they can opt out. Uh, and instead of serving in the army, do some sort of officially recognized communal service. Uh, then there are other kind of escape clauses uh, for uh, other populations, such as uh, uh, Arabs, and particularly Muslim Arabs. Uh, at the same time, there are uh, non-Jewish citizens who choose to fight in the Israeli army, uh, even though they could be exempt. The best known example is the Druze community uh, uh, in, in, in Israel. Um, and then there's the ultra-Orthodox exemption. And the ultra-Orthodox exemption is, um, causes a lot of animosity uh, in the country. It powers a lot of um, uh, elections and fights during elections. And understandably, there's a sort of fight between, a battle between uh, those Israelis who serve uh, in the army uh, and the ultra-Orthodox community who they see as, perceive as just being lazy and uninterested. And, it's one of these kind of issues, and there are many of the issues in Israel, that gets the blood you know, uh, rushing at a, uh, at a Friday night dinner uh, conversation. In this series, um, there is an incredible episode in which one of the Haredi characters, or the, the whole bunch, they travel to the Golan, uh, um, which was the site of uh, battles and victory in 1967 against Syria. Uh, but now it's just a beautiful place to go on vacation. Uh, so they go to this uh, site in the Golan, and one of the, one of the yeshiva students needs to use the bathroom. Uh, he's in the middle of nowhere, so they stop the car, he gets out, uh, and he, he goes to do his thing. Uh, the other friends look, and they see a sign that is not uncommon in the Golan that says, Minefield. Oh, yeah. oh. So he finds himself 
after he relieved himself, he realizes that he's in the middle of a minefield. The, you know, the boys are, you know, go crazy. What are we going to do? And they call their, they do the responsible thing, and they call the, uh, the army uh, to get this guy out. Now, you can imagine, right, in this scene, the sort of animosity uh, between uh, the person, the soldier, who has to risk his life, right, to get in this person who he sees as a draft dodger, right? And, you know, the, the metaphor is, is almost overblown. It's in a minefield, literally. Um, and what's fascinating, though, is the way this uh, yeshiva student kind of responds uh, to this uh, fellow. This fellow wants to make an example of him, uh, and the only way to safely take him out is basically to carry him on his back. I'm not a soldier, so I don't know uh, what, it, what it's like to walk through a minefield, but he needs, the soldier needs to wear special shoes, and he only has one pair, and he's going to take this uh, Haredi boy, this ultra-Orthodox boy, out on his back, right? Once again, the symbolism is, is, is obvious, right? Look at, look at me, I'm carrying this ultra-Orthodox boy on my back. And this ultra-Orthodox boy feels that um, this is an affront to his dignity. Now, by the way, this fellow, this particular fellow, is an American citizen, and it's not Israeli. So it creates a little more of a complex uh, scene. But what ends up happening is that the Haredi boy refuses to leave on his back. He says, I'm going to walk out of the minefield. And, and obviously everyone, not just hilarity ensues, but there's a lot of yelling uh, and, and shouting. And he runs out of the minefield with everyone uh, screaming in order sort of psychotically to preserve his dignity and the dignity of the community, right? So it's a very entertaining series. Um, uh, it deals with issues of identity, of Haredi identity, and it really it goes head on sometimes into the fault lines. As soon as it comes out uh, in the US with English subtitles, I'm sure it will be available, possibly streaming within the next year or two. I highly recommend that you see the series. I want to um, just close by uh, thinking about one other series which is also about Haredi uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, and it shows you what um, artistically can happen uh, when you are willing to take risks and put on the screen figures who normally are not there, right? in this case, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews. This is a series um, that's two, so far two, two uh, seasons have run, uh, known as Shtisel. Has anyone heard of this uh, series? Um, it actually uh, has um, one recognition, uh, even in the United States. There was an article uh, in kind of one of the upper echelons of uh, American or New York culture, and a glowing review of this series in the New York Review of Books, right, which is not something you would have expected an Israeli show uh, to reach uh, not too long ago. And this story, um, I want to tell you a little bit uh, about the show and about what it allows um, television to do. So basically, in the show, there are two main characters. There's what I would call a Haredi Luftmensch, sort of guy who's often off in the stars, named Akiva, who lives alone with his widowed father, right, whose name is Reb Shulam Shtisel. Okay? They're bereft of the comforting presence of the woman of the house, and they basically shear meals in this little compact kitchen table like a pair of wounded cats, waiting to pounce, but mostly just hurting. They live in 
a Haredi neighborhood of Jerusalem known as Geula, right next to the better known Mea Sharim. Uh, and in fact, the uh, show is so location specific that you couldn't imagine it taking place even in another ultra-Orthodox uh, space such as B'nai Brak, right? So it's really highly, highly accurate. Now, Akiva is a good, if troubled, young man with kind brown eyes and light brown, hairs. brown hair. You'll see him in a minute. His beard is short, but long enough to be respectable. His gentle face is framed by long peyot, peyot, sidelocks. He has a teaching position in the local cheder, where his gruff father happens to be the principal. <laughs> now, when he's not teaching his students or sitting with shidduch dates, right, uh, in the lobby of the king's hotel, um, or sometimes hanging out with friends at the local kugel joint, because there are <laughs> such places in Jerusalem. I don't know if you have one in Phoenix. Uh, <laughs> or, or surprise. He puffs away dreamily on the apartment porch, and something clearly disturbs and stirs his soul. Now, he's an artist. He has an artistic soul, uh, this cheder teacher. And he's a doodler. From the moment that we first see him, He's sketching animals at Jerusalem's biblical zoo. I don't know if anyone's been there before, where he's on a cheder class trip, ignoring his students and just kind of sketching the, uh, the giraffes. Gradually, right, he starts to realize that he has talent and he could do things with his art. And one morning, he excuses himself from cheder to see if any of the upscale galleries on King David Street might be interested in his drawings. Now, because he's sort of insulated, he doesn't realize uh, that there's a glut on the market of pictures of smiling Hasidim, right? He's definitely never heard of Mark Chagall, uh, and he has no idea that this isn't a way to break into the Israeli art market. Worse, because he plays hooky one day from his class, he's fired uh, and will only be accepted back in the cheder if he submits a formal apology addressed, quote, to the principal of the cheder, Reb Shulam Shtisel. So this scene that I want to show you is really a remarkable scene. Coming home late, Akiva's going to place the letter next to his father, this please take me back letter, who has fallen asleep over a volume of Talmud. So, but it's actually a beautiful scene. So here he is in the kugel joint writing the letter, please take me back to the cheder, and let's see what happens. He's having his pickle, which is how you eat uh, noodle kugel in Israel. <laughs> so what happened in, the, uh, in that really beautiful scene uh, is obviously the, the, the maturation of this young man as an artist, where it's, he's not just looking to, to paint the smiling chassid, uh, which he thought would uh, you know, be meaningful. He notices, right, that his father bent over asleep uh, late at night in front of the Talmud contains really interesting artistic potentialities, paradoxes, what you see. It's not a pretty picture, right? He's bald, his kippah is off, uh, but it's a powerful image. And he realizes then that he's going to crumple up that, uh, that no, he doesn't want to go back to teach in the cheder. He's going to pursue uh, some sort of life uh, in art. And that's really what the show is sort of about. These are people who are not looking to leave their community. They're very happy uh, and comfortable uh, in, their, in their world. But there are, they are, like all of us, searching for meaning. 
Uh, and, and what the Haredi palette, if you will, uh, allows uh, television to do and this series to do is to look at those quiet, beautiful, profound, um, intense aspects of Haredi life and to make art out of it. And that's what that series uh, does. So that's my last example, uh, just to kind of sum up, and then we could have some questions. Um, we saw, first and foremost, that initially the role of culture in Israel uh, and with Zionism was very much connected to the um, resurgence of, of Jewish culture and ultimately Israeli culture. When it came to cinema and other art forms like theater, at least at the beginning, it was very much top-down. The, um, the leaders of the movement wanted to make sure that the right message was being sent, that this is an opportunity for Jews to become new Hebrews, muscular sabras. Uh, but as television slowly made its way from a time that it didn't exist uh, in the state for the first 20 years, ultimately into commercial television uh, and success and crossovers to the US, uh, we find artistic ambition and we find, I think, most um, noticeably the appearance on the Israeli TV of various characters who are part of Israeli society in one way or another. Even if there are tensions uh, over these communities, they are Israeli. Uh, this includes both Israeli Arabs and ultra-Orthodox. Uh, and it's a way to explore these fault lines uh, but, and also to do really make beautiful art, uh, as I think this series Shtisol shows. So thank you for listening. And uh, I'm very happy to take questions. Yes? You told us you were going to tell us about your um, study. Oh, so I, uh, about eight years ago, I was commissioned by the Jewish Review of Books to, um, to review a movie uh, that I was only asked to review this movie because it had to do with Talmud. Uh, and I am a Talmudist. That is my area of research. This was a movie by Joseph Cedar uh, called Footnote. Has anyone seen it? It made it actually, it was a nominee uh, for, uh, I, I don't remember the name of the category, but World Cinema at the Oscars. Uh, interestingly enough, it lost out to an Iranian film uh, called The Separation, which was also a really incredible, powerful film. Of course, that didn't make Israelis too happy since Israelis are in a state of war with the Islamic Republic. But regardless, it was uh, a very impressive movie. And the movie is about the, um, a, a father-son relationship that takes place in the Hebrew University Talmud department. Now, that's not, that might not sound like exciting cinema, uh, but actually, uh, it's an incredible film. And I was asked to write a review because I was, at that point, a lecturer in the Talmud department at the Hebrew University. So perhaps I would have some perspective. Um, I didn't know anything about film studies. I didn't know anything about how to write a review. And I had this assignment, which I foolishly took. I had three months to write it. I didn't know where to begin. And I started speaking to my colleagues at Hebrew U in the film department. Uh, I started reading, and I discovered something that I'm sure others who studied film realize. And that is, when you watch film or TV, uh, moving pictures, uh, for enjoyment, you don't necessarily appreciate the intricacy 
uh, not only of the plot line and the storyline, but of every aspect of the art, how each shot right, can take uh, much time. And I actually realized in that review, particularly about that movie, that there's something Talmudic uh, about the way these, some of these things are made. The way they're kind of intricately fit together reminded me of how a Talmudic passage came together. So I have not switched fields. I'm still a Talmudist, and I'm still working primarily in classical Jewish studies. But I now am very interested in follow and contribute sometimes uh, to film studies and television studies. So that's sort of my personal journey uh, to this. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Fauda. Yes. And the other one, crochet, I don't know what it oh, is. Oh, Srugim. Srugim. I love Srugim. Yes. And I Yes, yes. Srugim is another example. Srugim uh, means knitted, and it refers to the uh, yarmulkes, the kippot, that members of the what we would think maybe of as modern Orthodox community, uh, the men, uh, wear. Uh, that, too, is a series that suddenly places on the screen not ultra-Orthodox Jews, but Orthodox Jews, and really kind of touchingly follows the story uh, stories of four or five singles uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem. That, I do believe, is on Amazon streaming with English subtitles, and it is wonderful. Um, and there's what to discuss there. Another, I think, incredible success is the other series, which there's now been two series of, Fauda, which is on Netflix, I think now the second yes, season yeah. as well. That series, uh, it might look like another homeland, uh, but in fact it isn't. It's about a special forces unit, uh, uh, Israeli special forces unit, that uh, does their dirty work, the hard work of, of uh, keeping some sort of uh, stability in a chaotic, which is what Fauda means in Arabic, uh, Middle Eastern environment. Uh, but what's fascinating about the series is you get to appreciate how close, frighteningly close, Israelis and Palestinians are to one another. That you sort of, you pop in and there's a mission uh, in the West Bank and then you, you pop out and you try to make a life uh, for yourself beyond your job, which of course uh, is doomed. The relationships uh, in that show um, between uh, family members and friends on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side are painted in a very humanistic lens, right? On both sides, there are human beings, right? And these human beings often find themselves in conflicts. There are some bad guys of those human beings, but these are human beings, right? And they have familiar relationships. And even more daringly, most daringly, there is a romance that develops between a special forces, Israeli special forces um, character and a Palestinian doctor, Palestinian French doctor. Uh, if you have not seen this series, uh, you should see it. I highly recommend it. And F A U D A, and it is uh, available on Netflix. Srugim, S R U G I M. I feel like I'm on a spelling bee. Yeah. That's lighter. That one you. Fauda, you'll have to binge. You can't just watch one episode. I saw there was another hand. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I lived in Israel from 51 to 52. Yeah. The best uh, television station was Channel 2. Yes. And uh, also, uh, every day there was two only English uh, uh, news and things, and then the rest was all English. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, Channel 2 
until recently still existed, and that was the classic old Israeli. It's now Channel 10, and there's been some kind of moving around, but that was the old, you know, that first uh, governmental, you know, channel that was available. Right. Yes. Everything else was all Hebrew. Yeah, or Arabic, because you would right. get Egyptian and, and Jordanian. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming uh, to this sort of outpost of uh, Jewish culture. It looks like quite an outpost. <laughs> I definitely do. I could send you a longer list. I actually am also involved in a book club. Uh, in New York, when I'm not at Bard College, uh, I teach at an institution um, oops, called Drisha. Uh, and we have a Drisha book club and Jewish study. So what we've been doing is taking um, Jewish novels, sometimes Israeli and sometimes otherwise, and pairing them with interesting Jewish texts. So we just read a beautiful uh, book by a very well-known Israeli author, Aaron Appelfeld, uh, who only recently died, a Holocaust survivor. Most of his books are about the Holocaust, but the book that we read was, uh, in English, The Man Who Could Not Stop Sleeping, and was about his experiences or a character like him uh, right after the Second World War as a teenager, um, going first to a camp in Naples, uh, and then uh, to the about-to-be-founded state of Israel, be, being wounded uh, in battle. It is a, it's, it's a stunning, beautiful um, uh, piece, of, piece of art. Uh, and it's not terribly long, so that's my go-to, I think, for your next, you. your next book. And we would love your list. I will. I'll be happy to send you the list. Does the Habima Theater still uh, perform? Yes, the Habima Theater is a good example of, um, uh, of the investment that Zionists put into uh, art and theater. And yes, it's flourishing. It existed in a European form uh, before the founding of the State of Israel, where they would travel to Europe. So Habima is a good example of you know, sanctioned, um, uh, High Israeli art that was kind of put out there for, for the public. So I think we're done time wise. This was a pleasure. Great to meet you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.